So we're in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I want to begin by declaring to you that we are at war. I'm not talking about the war in Ukraine or some war with North Korea or a war over Taiwan. I'm not talking about a cultural war or the war on terror, the war on drugs, the war on crime. I'm talking about a spiritual battle. We are at war. And the stakes in this war, in this battle, are higher than any of those other battles, any of those other wars that I've just mentioned. The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. You can't believe the Bible without also believing that we are in a real spiritual war. So our adversary, uh, the Bible uses several different names for our adversary. It calls him Satan, calls him Lucifer, calls him the devil. And the Bible says that he has one primary weapon, one primary tool to bring destruction in our lives. And that weapon is deceit. That weapon is to tell a lie. In fact, when Jesus talked about the devil, he described him as the father of lies. And he said that when the devil lies, he speaks his native tongue. I heard one preacher say, that the devil only speaks three times in Scripture. First, Genesis chapter 3, he lies to man about God. And then in the book of Job, he lies to God about man. And then in Matthew 4, he lies to the God-man Jesus. So the devil is a liar. And that's the weapon that he uses to destroy our lives. That's the weapon he uses to destroy our families and our marriages and our church. That's the weapon he used to destroy our, our future. We are at war. Now, there are three primary lies that Satan uses that we also see in the story of David and Bathsheba. We began to look at this story last week. And we looked at the first few verses, I think verses 1 through 6. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with the story. David is king. Uh, he is not at war when he should have been at war. He didn't go with his forces to lead the armies into battle, but he stayed at home. He ended up on the roof of his palace. He was looking around, saw a beautiful woman, and then he really saw a beautiful woman. He didn't just notice her, but he looked, he lusted, he inquired about her, he sent for her, he committed adultery, she's pregnant. The story of David and Bathsheba. Now, the reason David's life began to unravel in 2 Samuel 11 is that he believed three lies from Satan. He, he was in this spiritual war, and Satan unleashed his greatest weapon, these three lies, and it brought uh, David down. And I want you to see these same lies and how they can bring us down if, if we believe them. So let's look in 2 Samuel 11, and we'll pick up in verse 8. This is after Bathsheba 
has announced that she is pregnant. David is the father. Uh, Bathsheba is married. Her husband is off to war. So verse 6 says, David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Uriah, that's Bathsheba's husband. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were doing and how the war was going. And then he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now that was an idiom for go make yourself comfortable with your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. Now I want you to see that David has already sinned and he sinned and then one sin led to another that led to another that led to another and now he's seeking to cover up the sin so he brings in the father, I mean the husband of Bathsheba and he gets him, he hopes to get him to go and spend time with Bathsheba uh, to, um, uh, so that he can say that the child uh, that has been conceived is not David's but it's Uriah's. You know that part of the story. Uh, David is so uh, focused on this, he even sends some gifts uh, so that they can go and celebrate. Look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. So it turned out David wasn't nearly as smart as he thought he was. And uh, Uriah, he just wouldn't go in. He uh, saw his wife, but he stayed outside. Uh, we see his explanation, verses 10, 11, and 12. Uh, he said he couldn't go in when his fellow soldiers were out in the battlefield. Look at verse 13. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants. He did not go home. So plan B for David was to go and get Uriah drunk, and he thought, well, certainly when he's drunk, he will go in and visit with his wife. But it turned out that Uriah drunk was still more godly than David sober. Look at verse 14. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter he wrote, put Uriah uh, at the front of the fiercest fighting and then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. So you see that David is going to greater and greater extremes. He hopes that Uriah will die. And then David can say that he was, that Uriah was with Bathsheba. And who's to dispute it other than Bathsheba? Well, it seems to work. Verses 16 through 24, Uriah dies and word comes back to David. Look at verse 25. David told the messenger the messenger who has brought word back that Uriah has died. So David told the messenger, say this to Joab, that's the leader of God's army, uh, don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. So essentially David sends the message back to Joab, oh well, sometimes people die. Uh, David didn't care at all about the man who had died because David was trying to cover up his sins. You know, when we begin to cover up sins, all of us are susceptible to this. We can become so selfish and so self-centered uh, that we don't care about anybody but us. And that was the case with, with David. Well, verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. 
Uh, there's no indication at all here that David mourned, and that's important. We'll come back to that. Verse 27, when the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Now, this is just more of David's manipulation. Uh, he would have been uh, perceived by the public as having done a wonderful thing. Here's poor Bathsheba. She's pregnant. Her husband has been killed in battle. So this magnanimous king takes her in, marries her, so he can help her and raise this son uh, of the fallen soldier. Now, none of that's true, but David did even this so that people would praise him. But you can see that the Lord is not happy. Just in the last few words of verse 27, notice it again. However, the Lord considered what David did to be evil. Now, I want to read one verse of the next chapter. So the Lord sent Nathan to David, and when he arrived, he said, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, one poor. What we see in the next few verses of chapter 12 is that this prophet of God, Nathan, with a message from the Lord, comes and confronts David about his sin. And he gets David to say in a hypothetical case that the sin is wrong. And then Nathan says, but you're the one who's guilty of the sin and everybody, everything is brought, uh, brought to light. Now, it's interesting the timing of this. What you read in 2 Samuel 12, 1, when Nathan comes and confronts David about his sin, would have happened between one and two years after the beginning of chapter 11. And I'll, if we have time, I'll share with you how we know that. Uh, this, was, uh, this was a delayed uh, confrontation by, by Nathan. Now, when we read this story, and I'm sure you're the same way I am. When I read this story of what David did and the lengths he went to to uh, cover up his sin, including murder, I'm thinking, I would never do that. Isn't that what you're thinking? Raise your hand if you would murder somebody. Okay. But here's the truth, church. I would do that if I believed the lies that David believed. It's not that I'm smart and David was dumb. It's not that I'm spiritual and David was worldly. No. It's that David believed some lies that led him to do unthinkable things. And if I believed those same lies, I could do the same unthinkable things. Do you want to know what those three lies were? Let me show them to you very quickly. Lie number one from Satan, you can cope with it. When you think about a sin, when you're tempted to sin, Satan will say to you, you can cope with it. You can handle the consequences. The consequences may even be worth it. You can cope with this. And so when David considered this sin, he heard this lie. And he did some mental calculations, and David decided it's worth it. Have you ever done that before? I think perhaps the best example, for me anyway, is Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving, my wife and my daughters lay out an incredible spread of food. 
And I stand as the king of the house, and I look over the spread of food, and I know something. If I invest my heart in this food, I'm going to regret it in two hours. So I have to make a decision. Do I eat or not eat, right? Now, what do you do? See, you make that calculation and you decide, I know it'll make me miserable, but I'm going to eat all of it. And then I jump in and then I regret it. But I made a calculation that it's worth it. See, now, one of the lies of Satan when we're considering, when we're tempted, when we're considering a sin is it's worth it. You can cope with it. The consequences won't be so bad. You can live with the consequences. That's a lie of the devil. Uh, The problem with this lie is that there's so many unknown variables that you're just, that we're just not considering. Now, let me demonstrate this by showing you something that you probably believe about David that's wrong. Have you ever heard someone say, David uh, was a man after God's own heart? Have you heard that before? Well, it's in the Bible. So, I mean, you heard something good. But we get this idea, and I hear people say this all the time, that David sinned with Bathsheba and with Uriah, and he did this cover-up. And, you know, David did a lot of really nasty things, but David also was a man after God's own heart. Have you ever heard that? I think you probably have heard that from me. We talk about David as this terrible sinner, and at the same time, David is a man after God's own heart. But listen, church, that's a little bit of revisionist history. That's not, the, that's not the story that unfolds in First and Second Samuel. As it turns out, that phrase, that description, David is a man after God's own heart, was something that God said to Samuel when he referred to David as a young man who was about to be anointed as king. You read that in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And then it's repeated in the New Testament, Acts 13, 22. I'll read that verse for you. It says, he raised up David as their king and testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my own heart. So when David was young, before he was the king, God said that David was a man after his own heart. But listen, church. Once you get into the reign of David, once you get into the latter half of David's life, there is no endorsement of David's heart ever given by the Lord in Scripture. Uh, if you look at 2 Samuel 11.1 1 as the hinge point in David's life, so we just take David's life and we chop it in two, 2 Samuel 11.1, 1, that's the He didn't go to war, and he saw Bathsheba. If that's the middle point, let me describe David's life before that and after that. Before 2 Samuel 11.1, it was true of David that he was a motivated warrior and a successful military commander of God's armies. Before that, David demonstrated an honorable commitment to marriage. Before that, David took extraordinary risks to protect Saul's life, though David could have lost his own life in doing so. Before that, David established the throne. I mean, really established the throne. 
Before that, David shows compassion and grief when people die. In fact, a number of times we see that somebody would die and David would just be crushed because of their death. Uh, David is a decisive leader. David's prayers are effective. David is fearless. And David draws the acclaim of thousands and thousands. That's David pre 2 Samuel 11.1. But if then you take a snapshot of David after 2 Samuel 11.1 and you look at the rest of his life, here's his character. He's reluctant to lead the military. He's reluctant to fight against God's enemies. He commits adultery. He disrespects marriage, his own and that of others. Instead of taking risks to preserve life, David plots an innocent man's death. David is cold and insensitive. He is indecisive. His prayers are ineffective. David is fearful. He is a terrible parent. He is abandoned by thousands of followers. And he puts the throne and his reign in jeopardy. See, there's a before and after to David's life. And we need to be careful. I need to be careful that we don't just take that phrase, David was a man after God's own heart, and just label his entire life with that. That's not the biblical record. David's life peaked in 2 Samuel 10. 1 Samuel 16 to 2 Samuel 10 were years of spiritual vitality for David. 2 Samuel 11 through 20 were years of spiritual famine See, David thought, here's the point, David thought he could cope with this sin. That was the lie he believed. He knew it was wrong, but he believed the lie, you can cope with this, you can handle this, you can deal with the consequences. But David had no idea how grave the consequences would be. And the rest of David's life is one long regret about 2 Samuel 11. We're going to study, if the Lord allows, over the next several weeks, we're going to continue our work through 2 Samuel. And you're going to see that the rest of his life was one long regret. See, it's a lie of Satan that says you can cope with it. Now, the second lie that he believed is you can control it. You can control it. Uh, preachers, preachers like me, we love to talk about the slippery slope of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11. Uh, I, I think I've preached that sermon here. Uh, we talk about one sin led to another sin. You know, he didn't go off to war, and that ended up putting him on the palace rooftop. He was looking at uh, women, and that led to him lusting, and then that led to him inquiring, and that led to him sending for, and that led to adultery, and that led to lying, and that led to all kind of things. It just, one sin led to the other. It's a slippery slope. And so we all understand that. That certainly is true. That's how the Bible presents sin. But, but I, what I want you to see is why. Why is it that one sin in my life is likely to lead to another sin in my life, which is likely to lead to another sin in my life. Why is that? Well, I want to show you in Scripture, and this, I'm going to go quickly because this is a flip-flop Sunday and I don't have a lot of time, and, and, and there's a lot to this, but, but you listen fast, I'll talk fast, okay? In the New Testament, the word train, train, T-R-A-I-N, not the locomotive train, but to train, to train for something, the word train, the Greek word, is gymnasium. 
Now, we've softened the G, so we would say it's gymnasium. Now, does that sound familiar? Gymnasio, I think is what the verb would be in Greek. It's the word, we get our word, gymnasium. So now the word picture here for train in the New Testament is pretty clear. Uh, you go to the gym, you go to the training center in Greek, and the more you work on some muscle group, you're lifting weights, the more you work on some muscle group, the easier it becomes over time for you to lift that same amount of weight, right? You understand how it, how it works when a person trains. Well, what the Bible teaches us in the New Testament is that when you make a godly choice or an ungodly choice, you train yourself, you gymnasium yourself to make more similar choices easier. Does that make sense? So you go to the, you go to the gym and you struggle to pick up 30 pounds. But you pick up 30 pounds 100 times, and you go back two days later, you do it again, and do it again, do it again. After a while, you can pick up that weight easily, right? Because your body has adapted to picking up that amount of weight. You have trained yourself. Well, when you make a godly choice or an ungodly choice, your spirit adapts to that choice so that it is easier and more likely to make that same choice later. Now, let me show that to you in Scripture. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, train yourself, gymnasium yourself in godliness. Now, what, what is he saying? You make some godly choices, and it will become easier and more likely that you'll make more godly choices because your spirit will adapt just as your body will adapt when it goes to the gym. Godly choices make the next godly choices easier. Train gymnasium yourself in godliness. Now, let me share another verse, 2 Peter 2.14. It says, they seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Now, here is training for sin. What he's saying here is if you gymnasium, you train yourself to sin by making one sinful choice, it will become easier and more likely that you'll make the next sinful choice. See, the reason why there is a slippery slope of sin is because we're training ourselves. We're going to the gym every day as we make spiritual choices, and we're either training ourselves for godliness or we're training ourselves for sin. So Satan comes along and says, when, when we're tempted, you can control it. But listen, friends, that's a lie. You can't control it. I can't control it because we are literally training our spirit to sin or we're training our spirit for godliness. Uh, it's a logical fallacy. It would be like saying, uh, I'm going to walk east while I'm walking west. Okay? I'm going to walk north. I'm going to turn left while I'm turning right. If we say, I'm going to train myself for sin but I'm going to control it, then we've just believed something that is absurd. So Satan says to David, you can control it. But David all along is training himself. He's gymnasium, gymnasium, I'm making up a word, himself for sin, for sin. 
So let me give you the third lie very quickly. You can conceal it. Um, You know, I think if all else fails, Satan says, nobody will ever know. You're smarter than the next guy and you can keep this hidden. Well, here's what's interesting. Uh, It was one to two years, I think I've already said this, one to two years later uh, that Nathan confronted um, David about his sin. Uh, We know that the baby was already born, so that's nine months. Uh, And then uh, we know that just shortly after this confrontation that Bathsheba gets pregnant again, she was nursing, she was not taking her uh, supplements. <laughs> and uh, so the scholars say uh, that, um, you know, it would have been a year, a uh, year since the first conception, maybe two years before she would likely to be pregnant again. So a year to two years later. Now, why does that matter? Does that surprise you? So here's what happened. David sinned, covers it up. I, I, I'm sure it was like a dagger in his heart. Am I going to get away with it? Somebody going to tell? Joab certainly knows the commander of God's army. Is he going to tell? David must have been scared to death. But then the next day, David feels a little better. And then the next day, and the next day, and the next day, 365 days later, 500 days later, David's getting away with it scot-free. Then Nathan shows up and exposes everything. So here's the question. Why was there a delay. Here's, here's the reason. Because God in his mercy was giving David time to confess and to repent. David had a year. He could have confessed and repented. He didn't. So God finally moved. If you and I have sin unconfessed sin in our lives, secret sin perhaps, and God has not confronted you with it. Friends, that is the mercy of God, giving you one more day, one more day to confess and to repent. Listen, I'm out of time, but let me give you some homework. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have a paper Bible, but even if you have an electronic one, turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is the prayer that David prayed after he was confronted over his sin. It's 19 verses. It'll take you exactly 120 seconds to read it at normal reading pace. But I'm going to ask you to do something different. If there's unconfessed sin in your life, I want you this afternoon to turn to Psalm 51, and I want you to read it very slowly. And I want you to precede every verse, preface every verse with the phrase, Oh, Jesus. And then I want you to read the verse, and then I want you to think about the sin. Now, let's practice. Look at verse 7. I want you to do all 19 verses, but I'm going to do just a few. So here's how I would read verse 7. Oh, Jesus, purify me with hyssop, 
and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And ponder your sin. Read verse 8. O Jesus, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. O Jesus, verse 9, turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. Verse 10, O Jesus, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Today, let us not wait for God's Nathan. Let us confess our sins. And let us, because of Jesus, put our trust and faith in the Lord. Just head bowed and eyes closed. Father in heaven, I pray right now, I pray that you will bring us to the throne of grace, that we will confess and we will have the, re- the joy of salvation restored. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.